Welcome to the Oil and Gas Council Podcast Investor Series. Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Oil and Gas Council. Today we are joined by Brian Thomas, Managing Director of Oil and Gas at Prudential Private Capital Group. During the episode, Brian talks about how institutional investors like Prudential can provide capital for oil and gas companies in place of commercial banks who often need to pull back on their lending during downturns like this. Let's jump into the episode and hear more about what Brian has to say. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. So, you know, we've had you involved in our events for years. You always have great comments to share on what Peru is doing, both in Canada and the U.S. Before we jump into that, can you have a very brief walkthrough on your career, um, where you grew up, university, et cetera, just to paint a context for everyone who's listening? I wasn't expecting that this is your life type conversation, but um, my background is a little bit different. I always tell people I was, I'm a military brat, so I was born overseas and a good portion of my life in places like Japan and Italy before making my way back to the U.S. and ending up in Houston of all places. But, uh, but I spent my formative years in Texas. Uh, I married a Texan, so I'm one by proxy. Did my undergrad here in, in Austin and, and then worked in banking for a few years before and taking my two-year vow of poverty and going back to grad school and, and then making my way to Prudential Capital, which is uh, at that time kind of was a hybrid investment group where they were spending you know, a good portion of the time on corporate finance and then energy. And there's a number of individuals that I worked with that recruited me to come with them that made their way back into the energy industry. But it's, it's an asset class that's always had a fairly large presence within Peru's private investment activity. And so you know, at that time, it allowed me to and I worked within a group that was kind of investing across the, the energy value chain. So as opposed to being a pure play, kind of sub-sector specialist within a single form of capital, um, it was more of a kind of merchant banking model that allowed us to kind of evaluate deployment of you know, senior, junior, you know, structured equity, et cetera, you know, across you know, upstream, midstream, regulated assets. And you know, now people call it infrastructure. Back then, we just called pipelines. Nonetheless, uh, you know, that... 1995 seems like a long time ago to start, but that's kind of the, the time frame we're working with here. Yeah, and as you kind of talk about Prudential's oil and gas portfolio and general strategy, it would be interesting for you to kind of touch upon how that's evolved from 95 to today. I mean, it's evolved with the industry's evolvement, with the cycles. That could be an interesting thing, right? Because we're in a very different world than we were pre-shale. You know, it was $10 oil or give or take at the end of the 90s, we're in a similar place now, right? Any parallels you can draw along the way would be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, the fact that our platform stayed durable is more a function of the the structure that allowed us to kind of pivot to what area we felt like was the most stable during that period of time. And then also not being married to a single form of capital, because as you know, through cycles and through both industry cycles, as well as a company's growth cycle, form of capital that they need that's relevant to their business plan evolves. And so this always allowed us to be perhaps maybe a bit more objective in our workings with management teams as they were kind of going from some sort of nascent idea to securing a, a resource base, to exploiting it, to growing it, to, you know, some of the Canadian relationships we've had going public, getting bored with being public, selling, retiring, getting bored with being retired, starting it all over again. So many management teams we've worked with were actually you know two or three or four platforms over the the last three decades, but it goes through cycles and each time it feels like that moment is going to last forever. And I think the industry finds a way to kind of 
evolve and, and become relevant again. And he is getting to a position where he can attract capital and reward the capital that's deployed in the, in the field. And real quick, you had mentioned that when you joined and, and today, oil and gas and energy in a broader terms has always been a, a pretty significant part of Peru's private investment portfolio. Just for context, what is the, the assets under management for Prudential? What's the energy bit? kind of Canada versus U.S. split, just so we can kind of get some uh, feel on, on scale. Yeah, I'll have to clarify that because there's, you know, obviously you know, when we, we talk about that, we were supposed to be specific as it relates to the actual date in question. But, you know, we the, the portfolio, you know, collectively, all forms of energy is probably, you know, north of $16 billion. It's a material percentage of the overall private allocation. And that, you know, you can subdivide it as much as you want. Do you want to talk about conventional energy? Do you want to talk about, you know, the power platform with renewables that we have as well, that we all kind of deploy out of a single group? The goal is to try and maintain what we view as kind of a holistic view of the, of the broader energy markets and, and allocate capital to where we think it makes sense for folks to trust their money with us. The conventional energy, which is the upstream, midstream side, has historically been about half that, that mix. We have more deployed in Canada right now, at least as it relates to upstream than the lower 48. But part of that is just because over the last three plus decades, we've always been a relationship-based investor. And that, that doesn't mean we don't do analytical rigor and make adult decisions. It means we look for management teams and ownership groups that, that value the relationship and the trust in Canada that comes with that as much as they do, you know, cost of capital and access to capital. And, and you know, when times are good, that those relationships don't matter a whole lot. It's actually times such as what we're experiencing right now is where you know, they're, they're looking to draw upon that bank account of trust. And, and if they hadn't spelt, spent the years kind of building it up, there's, there's not much there to work with. And so the Canadian energy market has always been one where we've, we've had very close working relationships with management teams. Also, the Canadian market has historically not done as much in the public debt markets. They've relied more on institutional capital on the private basis to kind of fill that void in addition to their bank relationships and occasionally public equity. And so in some ways, we, we like the relationships to that market, but it, it's also the, the landscape of how that, that sector's access capital that's really been a good fit for institu- institutional money. We've seen increasingly, I think, that trend work back its way into the lower 48 as some of the traditional forms of capital that you know, U.S.-based companies have relied on have, have contracted, and, and some of that may be temporal and some of that may be, may be a long-term secular issue, but one way or another, we, we hope to stay relevant. I remember in the past few years, Canada has been challenged for, for quite some time in terms of sourcing capital. And, and you had said that Peru is able to step in and kind of bridge that gap from commercial lending that dried up or, or been closed off to a lot of juniors. And then you can kind of be the facilitator of the capital stack in a way. And you talk about that a little bit in a little bit more detail. And then you, you said it's trickling down to the lower 48, maybe some, some examples uh, at a high level of uh, how that's starting to play out as well. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, our group is, we view ourselves as, you know, a partnership advisory role. Our advice is certainly free. We're meant to be complementary capital. We're not change agents, right? So in some ways, what we're looking for is companies that are already well run and, and moving in the right direction. So if we're not control-oriented equity, we are not, um, and we are also not public style, you know, lenders. We're simply just looking for the best relative value return. But many instances, they're just parking capital until there's a better option. The key is, is that, you know, you have to have access to senior debt, junior debt, occasionally equity, so that you can look at situations and really evaluate what's necessary for that company. One of the holes that we had in our 
portfolio of capital for many years was just a, a larger amount of, of floating rate capital. And we've increasingly expanded that mandate under our direct lending program, which is becoming more common across the institutional market as it, the bank market pulls back and institutional capital providers kind of fill that void. Um, it's certainly not the same cost of capital that you know the, the traditional conforming commercial bank market might otherwise be, be lending to, but it's certainly competitive relative to uh, what presumably would otherwise be paying to issue equity or some other form of capital. And so, you know, as the bank market has contracted, some of that is just managing their risk relative to the last cycle. Some of that is regulatory driven. Some of that is, as you'd mentioned before, is, you know, in response to kind of ESG related conversations that they're having with their investors, someone's got to fill the void. And, you know, we're trying to do so in a thoughtful manner. So in some deals, we're, we're coming in with junior capital. Some instances, we're coming in with both the senior and the junior capital to fill out the entire gap stack. But it's done in a way that to the extent the company, usually it's an M&A related event or something that's a, a singular event that we envision the company will grow to a size through drilling and development to kind of migrate back to conforming bank facilities. So it's all largely constructed so that, you know, the company isn't necessarily held hostage by a capital structure, but rather the tenor and the form of the capital is designed to kind of fit that stage of the company's life to where they grow and develop to to a point where perhaps maybe we either introduce a a different form of capital, maybe just going all senior or perhaps allowing them to, you know, migrate back to the bank market. When you guys start to come in and fill the void of the banks, when you were bringing in other investors, were these institutions that had a, a long track record in oil and gas, were they a bit newer? And how do you think they're going to react to what we're going through right now? I mean, the the general consensus is there were a lot of investments made, particularly in the lower 48, on tier two, tier three rock that is uneconomic at a lower price point and is likely not going to be bid on, is going to have to go into blowdown and and just kind of produce out because the capital markets aren't there, cash flow to be reinvested. It'll only flow to those tier one assets, at least until... Demand returns, supply contracts a bit, and there's a reset in the market and oil prices go higher that allow these tier two, tier three assets to come back online. Do you think there's going to be enough carnage on the capital market side where some of those players that you saw kind of fill the void for banks say, no way, this has been too painful. Either it's their first foyer and there's too too much recent pain to do it again, or it's been multiple decades and they, they pivot away from it. Because just the returns haven't been there comparative to other sectors that might be out there. You're trying to turn me into a futurist. Yes, <laughs> is, the, is the answer. You know, the challenge, as you know, Tim, and you've seen it before. I mean, you know, this, this, this is an old sector, right? There are no new ideas. You know, people act like there's new ideas, but it's really just a retread of stuff that was done the last cycle. It's vogue again. And, and correspondingly with with capital, you know, there's not many barriers to entry. And so invariably, there's going to be that universe of money that views it as a great time to kind of jump in because it's a beaten down sector. And, you know, it's the relative value is appealing and et cetera, et cetera. The challenge, it's a little different this time because that, that was what we saw happen after the 2015, 2016, 17 cycle, where it was a challenge sector and money did did flow in. and But there was an active M&A market. There was a lot of you know opportunities for people to exit through means other than simply just actually cash flow from production. And we just haven't been seeing that. right. And so that's going to be, I think, a gating item that'll probably create some higher degree of 
a caution for, for new money kind of making its way in. The other is just the cost of returns. The, the practical reality is, is the sector is, hasn't you know, done anyone any favors, you know, whether that comic strip, you know, Pogo, where he says, we've met the enemy and he is us. I mean, a lot of the problems the sector has, it kind of created through, you know, technology and the growth of production, which is great, except in a commodity market, right? Where you have to have supply and demand balance. And so too much of a good thing isn't. isn't. So, you know, I think that the challenge is, is that you're going to have some folks that were in, got in and have not had results anywhere close to what they had before. And if they don't have the willpower to perhaps pull back, the money that they raised is going to have a voice at the table and be instructing them as well. Because at the end of the day, the, the people you see deploying capital, whether it's the large equity funds or large institutional money, we all live on bended knee too, right? We have to raise money behind the scenes and we have to be responsive and deliver results to the institutions that sleeve their capital through us as well. And so those conversations and those investment results are going to inform how capital is, is deployed. And so if you look at the future of, of energy, I mean, you look forward, 60% of you know global consumption is still going to be some form of, of fossil fuel for the foreseeable future, you know, in the 2040s and 50s, at least per the EIA or the IEA or whatever acronym you want to use um, that's put out their forecast. And so the cost of capital, or I should say the return on capital will have to kind of rise to whatever level is needed to attract the money that's needed to develop these resources. But right now they're still in the, that phase where people are trying to decide more about how they get their money back over what they earn on the money they deploy. And so I think it's going to create some friction for money making its way back into the sector in the time being. You know, we did an episode with Adam Watrous and his theory was there's been a structural change in the industry in that companies have more drilling inventory than they can possibly develop in the foreseeable future, nor do they have the capital. You know, you look at statistics like, you know, one company alone in the Permian needs $20 billion to develop all their inventory. So that's just not feasible, right? And he said in the past, pre-shale revolution, pre-fracking technology, everything like that, there was the age of scarcity, he coins it as, as companies always were, it was harder to drill successfully than it was to acquire good reserves in production. And so you had a healthy M&A cycle because of that. And now that M&A demand is eroded. And in his, in his eyes, it's not coming back, at least from an investor's standpoint, you can't plan on it coming back. And if it does, great, you get an extra pop on the exit. If you were to, to go on that string of thought, and it is more of a produce out, get your money through cash flow distributions through the companies you invest in, scale has to be important, right? Economies of scale to drive down costs. And so when you look at a junior market, and I know the junior market in Canada has been challenged for a very long time, you know, the last three, four years, and it's very much gone away. I know you guys have invested in a lot of juniors. So as we get into that world, what does that mean if those juniors can't get an exit or with more challenge? Is there still a role for the junior or do you think they, they just disappear over the next few years? Well, I, I hate always talking in absolutes. I mean, it makes for you know pithy commentary, but I think there will always be a role for juniors. There may not be a role for as many juniors as we have today, right? And so corporate Darwinism will run its course and you'll see mergers, whether voluntarily or forced. You know, I heard the term smash goes now recently used by a number of folks as it relates to how even just private equity is going to manage the portfolios that they have. You know, if you if you can't create value through the drill bit, at least in current markets, and, and commodity prices aren't constructive, the only thing you can do, obviously, is lower costs. And so G&A is certainly a target there. 
field level scale of operations, cost efficiencies are certainly a target there. And, you know, and the great thing about oil and gas companies is personnel wise, they're actually kind of tiny and, you know, oil and gas wells don't have HR issues, right? You can merge fields and not have, you know, you don't have those issues. So you can, it's a little bit like asset management on the money side, right? You can, you can manage a lot of stuff with the same as you can a small amount of assets. And so I think invariably there'll be some consolidation, but as you know, anytime you have these mergers and consolidations within the sector, there's also stuff that just gets shook loose. And that's the role of the juniors, right? To kind of a feast on the crumbs that are kind of knocked off the table and find value where other folks simply just don't have the time or the inclination to try and uh, create it because it's just too small for them to kind of marshal the resources to focus on. So that's how this industry works. I just think we're going through the cycle, quite honestly, where um, in some ways, if the capital gains event is off the table, what are you left with that motivates you to put money to work in the field? And that's really yield. And so that's sometimes kind of myself and my contemporaries are across the sector kind of muse on, you know, Friday over a, a glass of ranch water in terms of kind of where are we and what, what does this feel like? And it kind of feels like the eighties and you're getting back to a market where cash yield is going to be the catalyst for, for attracting capital. And I think a lot of activities are going to be more project oriented and focused on here's my dollar. What are you going to do with my dollar? How do I get this dollar back? And what's the effective cash yield on doing so? And not focusing on these serendipitous, you know, M&A events to monetize your investment and get a premium based on potential for future drilling. Do you think the scale of dollars raised, particularly in private equity, is going to remain? Or do you think that dials back? Because if you look at a lot of private equity funds that emerged in the 90s and into the 2000s, they were not to the scale they are today in the multi-billions, right? And the commitments to companies were much smaller, sub hundred million dollars. I mean, today you, it's not that outrageous to see a hundred, two hundred fifty, five hundred million dollar commitment to a single management team because it's more asset by asset, project specific. Do you think we go back, like you said, there's no new ideas? Do we go back to the smaller, more development type capital versus these larger commitments and putting these big stories together because we kind of know where the good stories are and it's just getting rifle shot on them from a development standpoint? It feels like there's that trend. I, again, I don't, I don't want to speak in absolutes. Um, I mean, there's some equity funds that have managed to distinguish themselves through the carnage. But, you know, it's, it's getting to the point where I think it's hard to be big and also find attractive investments. And so we can see kind of a balkanization of private equity market where you, know, you get these, these groups that kind of fractionate like a rock band and that will basically spin off and form a smaller fund that allows them to focus on kind of a, a target investment range that's probably a little bit easier, not as competitive, you know, off the radar for corporate investors and or other equity funds. And, you know, I, I think you'll see that trend emerge. I don't, I don't want to say that's, that's the trend because um, I think that's an oversimplification of what's going on. I think a lot of the equity funds are scratching their heads trying to figure this out as well. You know, some of it is thoughts that they're having. Some of it, quite honestly, is feedback that they're just getting from the institutional market that they raise capital from in terms of, you know, how do they respond to that market and how do they, you know, pivot to uh, attract capital? Because at the end of the day, um, in some ways, they're simply going to respond to whatever it takes to attract the capital needed to invest in the sector. Here's an idea, just food for thought. As you have private equity sponsors building their portfolios, let's just say 
right now they have a handful of Permian folks, a hand, handful in the Eagleford. They position their pieces on the chessboard. And now you, you kind of transition to a smash code type model where you have one Permian platform, one Eagleford, one Midcon, et cetera, et cetera. And then you expand upon that and you say, okay, I'm going to have a midstream piece in each of those basins. I'm going to have a minerals piece in each of those basins, a service piece. Does it get to the point where you get, because there's, it's very difficult to exit, you almost get lean enough to where the private equity portfolio itself could almost be a company. And then you start looking at an exit of the entire portfolio. And there's the economies of scale from that. And do they go public or do they, are they able to compete now with some of these larger IOCs and majors who have this immense advantage on this, on the economies of scale bit? Do you think that could ever get to that point or is it just too complicated with all the moving parts internally? I mean, I think you could do it and probably make money. I mean, the question you said, could they go public? Maybe. I mean, the one thing the public likes is scale, but what the other thing the public market likes is, is simplicity. And so, you know, having a portfolio of assets that you know looks a bit like dog's breakfast is not, not going to kind of sell well in, in the public domain, but that's, based on conditions as they exist today, right? I mean, if we get to the point where, you know, oil recovers, which we fully expect it will, it's just a function of when, not necessarily if, to a level that merits, you know, reinvestment, whether that's in the, in the mid-50s or, or something in that target range, will the public market come back? Maybe, but, you know, again, I, I don't focus on that because if that's your exit strategy, that's kind of a loser strategy. I think some of it will just come as a function of, you know, what you do to survive. And what you do to be able to attract capital to help you develop the resources that currently aren't producing, right? And then you get back to, you get scale, you get economics, you're able to attract capital to develop and produce. And then maybe you just get back to a dividend model. And yeah, it's, it doesn't get you that one-time M&A event that allows you to kind of exit and, and go to the bank and deposit your check. But it's more like what we saw during the 80s and early 90s, where some of these companies are just like, yeah, you know what? Here, here it is. We're going to develop. We're going to produce. We're going to delever. And we're going to distribute. That's, I think, a model that you may see more of right now than not, not because it's what people want to have happen, but it may be the only way people are able to uh, begin to kind of repatriate the capital that they put through the drill bit. What about, you touched on it briefly in the beginning of the conversation, the different players in the capital stack having more of a voice at the table, especially in a time like this, uh, it's already started to happen. Creditors converting their debt into equity. They realize companies have to be delevered to survive this. And just the behavior has been very different, particularly on the bondholder side in restructuring bankruptcy processes than it, it was just recent, recent years, 2014 to 16. You know, I think, do they see the writing on the wall uh, or is it just, hey, what we did in 2014 to 16 didn't work. We just kicked the can down the road. Nothing was really solved. We got to do something different. Just kind of that behavioral shift. Yeah, I mean, I think this cycle is going to be deeper and perhaps maybe even a bit longer. I mean, let's let's set aside what we're experiencing at this very moment in time, which is kind of like once in a lifetime, you know, demand destruction. And, and recall, a demand shock is always worse than a supply shock. Right, because a supply shock, you can with the short amount of time always find some more to kind of fill the void. But a demand shock, you know, you can't just open your desk drawer and, and find you know 15 million of, of hidden demand. It's just something that 
the sector is going to have to adjust to. And for a lot of these companies, what's going to put them under is just an absence of, of liquidity. You know, the reserves are still, they still have intrinsic value. They just, but we've reached a, a price point where many of them aren't worth actually extracting from the ground and selling, let alone pursuing in terms of developing. And so that's going to be the, the issue, I think, that is the catalyst for, for more conversions. It's just an absence of liquidity that bridges these companies to whatever the 12-month or 18-month cycle point is where underlying commodity prices recover to a point where you know, the company might actually contemplate drilling and doing developmental drilling and, and maintaining its asset base. And so if you're a debt investor in some of those instances and, and you see that as your, your issue, you can try and hang on like we did in 2015 and 16 on some of these deals, but you may just be depleting capital and watching it go out the door for interest expense and other things that aren't positioning the company for an ultimate recovery. And I think perhaps maybe in some of these instances, to the extent that these debt holders are, are feeling it, at least that the market is prices is so contango that the value of the option of converting to equity and the prospective recovery, you know, 24, 36 months forward is, is that much greater. I think it also is kind of a, a catalyst for that decision make, being made earlier versus later. Another question, and this kind of comes from, you, know, you can read various reports about this from a lot of the data houses out there, analytical houses. Also, just I know internally because we're stationed all over the world, we're starting to see interest from North American investors to look outside of North America, which was unfathomable the last five years. It's like, you know, we'll do an event in, in Latin America or Asia or Africa, and you have these season management teams are always coming up with these ideas based on their track record in, in these various regions and countries. And, hey, Tim or Oil Council, do you know of any private equity investors looking at, you know, North Africa or Colombia? And the overwhelmingly regular response from investors in North America was, why in the hell would I take on the, the above ground risks of international when I can can eliminate those risks and invest in the Permian or other basins in the U.S. and get such great returns. Now that attitude's starting to change a bit, you know, it's probably the assets and the risk allocation are being reset internationally to make it attractive enough to maybe take on those above ground risks. But have you seen any of that from your seat? I know you guys have primarily been U.S. Canada. You've done some stuff on the energy side in Mexico. I mean, have you thought about international or is it just maybe some competitions leaving? And you've always had that long-sighted view to look into the headwinds and maybe you see past this, you're like, this is a great time for us to maybe get some better value and we have less people to fight against. Our vantage point is, is because what I hear in that, that mindset from the investor is, well, we've always been North Americans focused because uh, the above ground risk, like political, regulatory, et cetera, et cetera, is lower than international. But now that that, political and regulatory risk above ground is, is greater in the U.S., you know, international doesn't look so bad anymore. Well, it doesn't mean the internationals come down. It just means that, you know, they're probably closer to risk parity. And I don't think that's a really good compelling reason to suddenly go international, right? If anything, it's just an argument for pulling back altogether. We think that there's plenty of opportunities still in, in the North America to focus on, but we've always focused on being close to areas where we deploy capital because we, we believe local familiarity with the resources and the management teams and the markets is, is central to our ability to thoughtfully deploy capital on a risk-adjusted basis. 
So again, it's one of the reasons why, even though Canada's had some challenges, some of them are the same as lower 48, some of them are unique to Canada and, and quite honestly, self-inflicted by uh, some of the activities that we see in the Canadian markets, whether it's government or, or the private sector. But it, it's still a market we know very, very well. And so, yeah, I, I don't see us changing our bias. If anything, if we are active internationally, but most of it is on infrastructure, midstream pipelines, LNG facilities, things that, you know, we can diligence and quite honestly, the economics are supported by commercial contract and not by, you know, commodity markets and probably less prone to uh, the challenges associated with expropriation or, or other things that you find where, you know, such in Mexico, where, you know, the challenges the PMEX have had have been largely because while it's a, it's a corporate entity, it's, it's largely viewed as an extension of the government and the resources it produces are largely viewed as owned by the people. So it makes it very challenging for third parties to come in there and feel confident that, you know, if they deploy capital, they'll be able to reap the full benefits of, of the rewards associated with the risk. Um, some of the challenges we found in working in international markets is your distribution of risk had, had two negative tails on it. You could lose money the old-fashioned way by just doing a bad deal, or you could also lose money by doing too good of a deal, and then all the, the local powers that be decided that they didn't cut a good enough deal, and so they, they changed the strike zone on you midway through your investment cycle. So it's just, we're not Exxon, we're not a major that has some degree of sway in some of those you know governmental dialogues. We're just a role player, and so we'll focus on those areas that I think we, we feel like we have a better command of the risks and when I'll see some greater degree of control of those risks. You know, you look at storage being full or, or near capacity in, in North America right now. I know that's a function of COVID-19 just sucking demand out of the, the supply uh, demand curve globally. Do you think it's too much of a knee-jerk reaction to say, let's invest in infrastructure, let's invest in storage projects? Or do you think there's there's an appetite and a need for that uh, in the next five years to where an institutional investor can, it's a good investment decision? It's it's hard. I think certainly what it does is it, it's suddenly in the, in the, in the eyes of the market, it, it restores the, the value proposition of, of access to storage. You know, the challenge is, is how do you deploy 30 year capital for a, for a 12 month need? And, and so I think there will be probably no shortage of people who think, hey, this is great, let's, let's rush in. But you know, the, it's all before the, the solution is built by simply just market forces. And so you know, in the absence of, of additional storage, people are creating you know, one wellbore at a time while they shut in production. Clumsy, potentially damaging to a reservoir, but at least it's something that an operator can control. But you know, so what are people going to do when they want to build infrastructure? They're going to want contracts. No one's going to build large-scale storage facilities on spec uh, for the most part. And so who's going who's gonna to be there basically committing to the seven or 10-year contract that's needed to motivate people to basically attract and deploy capital to build these assets? And I have no doubt that there'll be projects that are built on the margin, but that's the challenge that this industry, quite honestly, any industry has when you're trying to basically solve, you know, an acute near-term problem with, you know, an infrastructure investment that quite honestly requires 30 to 40 years to get your money back. Okay. No, fair. But I think you're correct. There won't be a shortage of people who show up, but do they end up you know, jumping on the, the next shiny object and end up regretting it? Well, that's why people go into floating storage, right? You can lease it for you know, a charter tanker for you know, 12 or 24 months, make money, money, release it to, to the market again. And you know, my swimming pool holds 35,000 gallons. If I could, I'd probably empty it and use it for storage too, but I, I can't. So, Do you have any closing uh, nuggets of wisdom 
that you want to bestow upon us, uh, lucky listeners? You know, quite honestly, I mean, it's, this industry goes through cycles. I mean, this is certainly no exception, it's, but it's not the same cycle as the last one. So I think people looking to draw analogies sometimes are looking in the wrong direction. You know, the practical reality, though, is, is it's an industry that's populated by optimists and, and entrepreneurs and, and clever people. And, you know, the invisible hand of the market usually finds a way to correct these things. It's not going to be a, a near-term fix. And quite honestly, though, um, as I've talked with folks, as painful as it is, it could prove to be the very thing that helps this industry kind of fix itself for the next decade or two as we bring supply and demand balances you know, more closely aligned and the business fundamentals basically move back to a better balance. The money will follow profits. It's, it's not there today, but, you know, quite honestly, again, if you look at the, the demographics for energy consumption globally for the next 30 odd years, it's, it's difficult to imagine a world that doesn't involve this sector in some levels. So the key is just kind of endeavor to persevere. Awesome. Brian, thanks again for everything, you know, my best regards to you and, and Callie and, and the rest of the, the Pru team. Stay safe and healthy. And I, I look forward to seeing you again, hopefully sometime soon. I know, I know we struck out the last time we tried to get together uh, up in Calgary. Um, it was right when everything started to unfold with dinners and receptions getting canceled. But nonetheless, keep in touch and we'll, we'll talk soon. Yeah, no, we appreciate the relationship we have with you and Alexandra and, and, and the balance of your team. It's been it's been a good collaborative working relationship. I think you guys play an important role in the marketplace in terms of kind of, I always like to say, playing the little yenta, getting folks together and keeping the dialogue going. I'm happy to help out as we can. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Oil & Gas Council represents the largest network of senior oil & gas executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our members to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about ways our team can fuel your business development efforts, then please email me at tim.powell at oilcouncil.com or visit our website at www.oilcouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks, and see you next time.